Please listen carefully. The Ethiopian government has started to become a complete authoritarian government in the past 12 months. They have maimed at least 1,000 people. The intensity and the speed of closing down internet and arresting people, killing people, is really, really shocking. This is The Week That Was at Global Voices, the podcast where we introduce you to people, places, and events from around the world that aren't getting the media coverage they deserve. And that was a sneak peek of what we have lined up for you in this episode. I'm Sahar, Managing Editor at Global Voices. I live right outside of San Francisco. And I'm Lauren, News Editor at Global Voices. I live in Bilbao, Spain. The Week That Was podcast takes a look at some of the stories that have recently come out of the Global Voices newsroom. This week, we'll be speaking with our contributor, Endelk, about protests, identity politics, and state violence in Ethiopia. We'll also tell you tales of tragedy, discrimination, and language activism from Pakistan, Trinidad and Tobago, and Australia. And we'll hear from our author, Salma Essam, who narrates the anguish she's feeling on the third anniversary of the Rabah massacre in Egypt. The square now looks like a typical bustling Cairo scene. Today, nobody remembers that not so long ago, they had to cross through sniper fire to reach the other side. The sound of bullets echo in my ears whenever I pass by this area. But before we get to those stories, let's go back in time to a few weeks ago. The internet is blocked, telephone lines are down, and whispers are spreading. We are in the most populous landlocked country in the world, Ethiopia. It's the first weekend of August, and hundreds of protesters are in the streets in two of Ethiopia's largest administrative regions, Oromia and Amara. Almost half of the country's 100 million strong population lives in Oromia and Amara. The protests started at different times and for different reasons, but they both stem from identity politics. Obviously, it has been a while since I left the country, like, so it has been three years now. But I keep in touch with my friends, with my fellow bloggers from prison. So I can see from social media that people who dare to protest, who dare to write clinical articles, uh, are deciding on their fate, on their lives, even, you know, liking Facebook status, critical status, uh, have become a kind of crime and people have started to fear, in, particularly in urban areas, particularly in the capital, in Addis Ababa. That's Endok, an exiled Ethiopian blogger who joins us from Eugene, Oregon, in the U.S. Endok is currently doing his PhD in journalism and communication studies there. He's been a member of our community since 2011. Back then, he taught English at a university in Ethiopia. Things have started to change of late, like in Oromia, in Amara, people have started to kind of get out of uh, their fear and go out to the to streets and protest. The fear factor is slowly dying, 
but the response from the government is brutal. Protesters in Aromia marched with religious books and green tree leaves to show that they came in peace. But they were met with a shower of bullets from Ethiopian security forces. So were the protesters in Amara. The following Monday, when communication was restored in the region, news sites and trusted social media accounts reported that 100 protesters were killed in two days. We expected this kind of stuff, but the speed and the intensity is a bit of a shock for us and for many people who are observing Ethiopian politics that the Ethiopian government has started to become a complete authoritarian government in the, in the past 12 months. They have maimed at least 1,000 people. So the intensity and the speed of closing down internets and arresting people, killing people, is really, really shocking. But when we compare the reports coming from Ethiopia, I'm a bit concerned because there is no report, there are no stories being told about this. Uh, partly, it's because the Ethiopian government effectively uh, managed to muffle all voices. There is no independent journalism in the country. When Enduk lived in Ethiopia, he also founded the Zone 9 Bloggers Collective, which published critical content about freedom of speech and freedom of expression in his country. Nine months after he started his PhD in the U.S., six of his fellow Zone 9 bloggers were arrested. They were jailed for months in horrific conditions and subjected to torture. Endelk played a critical role in raising international awareness of their arrest, which eventually led to them being released last year. With that in mind, I had a question for Endelk. So Endelk, that makes me wonder, what is it like in Ethiopia to disagree with the status quo? What is it like there to protest? There is a new trend coming from the country that people have started not to get scared by uh, bullets. So you can see there are videos coming out uh, that there is a direct confrontation with security forces, people who have nothing on their hands but leaves and books and, you know, they raise their hands uh, up and say that we came out peacefully and we don't have any violent agenda and but the government the response from the government is really brutal and you can see there are a lot of videos and images coming out which is really really concerning so to protest in ethiopia to come out on streets have become a daily practice for many people who live in oromia and in amara of late the response is really, really brutal. And three years ago, people have never thought of coming out to protest and to go out and show your disappointments, especially in country, in countries, in country areas, in rural parts of the country. Nowadays, uh, things have started to change. People do not fear. You can see 
the response uh, from the government is even brutal, but the confrontation is going really hard. So I can say there is a lot of change and uh, people are really becoming brave and uh, have conquered their fear to protest. And Doc, can we rewind back a little bit? A couple of years ago, you were in San Francisco and you came over to my place for dinner. When I asked you how you started teaching English, you said you didn't have a choice. Could you explain what you meant? It's, in Ethiopia, everything is planned from the authorities. The authorities plan individuals' life. So the state has the capacity to kind of plan and, and kind of micromanage people's life. They decide what career that you should follow when they decide uh, what kind of life that you should live, what kind of uh, education should you, you should attain, kind of. So they micromanage, the state micromanage uh, before I go to the colleagues. So they will decide that the government needs uh, human you know, resources on these areas, on teachings or, or you know, on medical uh, sciences or on, on engineering. So they will plan for you, carve out your career, you don't have any say in your career. Someone who wants to study different discipline uh, doesn't have a chance. So that's how the state manages uh, people, micromanages people's life. We don't have uh, a privilege to criticize one another, to criticize, you know, to tarnish the image of the country. So we need to focus on development, development. So, so they have forgotten that development is all about humanity and development all is about human life. The government wants to control and manipulate and they want to sustain their power. Uh, they have been like in power for the last 25 years. Back to the, the recent protests. The demonstration started at different times and for different reasons. But in your story for Global Voices, you mentioned that they both have in common or they both have to do with identity politics. Starting with the Aroma protests, could you explain what that exactly means and what sparked them? The Oromo protests have started in 2014. Uh, the, as you know, that GV has been covering the Oromo protests. Originally, when it started, it started as a protest uh, of the expansion of the capital, which is Addis Ababa, into the surrounding Oromo lands. Uh, and the activists claim, rightly, that this land belongs to the farmers and the expansion of the city will endanger the lives of these farmers. They started to protest about it and it was in 2014, which is started in Ambo, in a place called Ambo. It's 125 kilometers west of Addis, uh, the capital. And during that time, at least 20, 25 people were killed. You know, this, uh, it's a conservative estimate. The people say that there are like 40 or 45 people were killed. Uh, the government kind of stepped back and decided to discuss with people first. But in 2015, in November, uh, the government wanted to implement, uh, implement the plan and the protests had become very strong and well-organized, and since then, the protest has been on. And But the, the questions are also changing. Uh, 
uh, the Ethiopian, uh, the, the, the Oromo people have started to ask legitimate questions regarding their historical injustices in that country. When the state was formed, uh, the state was the Ethiopian state, uh, one of those old African states. It's expelled, obliterated uh, the Oromo culture, which is a historical fact. To understand this story, you need to know that regional borders are drawn in Ethiopia based on ethnicity. Oromia and Amara are two of nine ethnically-based administrative regions there. Constitutionally, Ethiopia is a democracy, which is supposed to divide power equally and fairly, but according to the Democracy Index, Ethiopia is an authoritarian regime. This government, when it came to power in 1991, have built on those grievances and say that now it's a time to kind of reorganize, restructure the state of Ethiopia and organize it along ethnic lines. Despite being the first African country to join the United Nations and its capital serving as the headquarters of the African Union, underdevelopment and inequality are rampant in Ethiopia. The distribution of wealth and power of the country's 100 million population falls suspiciously along ethnic lines. The Tigray make up 6% of the population, but dominate the ranks of the military and government. The Oromos uh, have been marginalized for hundreds of years. The current government kind of play to their grievances and, and the state was organized exclusively by ethnic grants, uh, which is only 6% from the entire population. They're, they're hailing from the northern part of the country and uh, all the military, all the security, the intelligence, the economy has become uh, a business exclusively for the Tigrayan elites. And the Oromos have started to kind of bring up those concerns with the question of uh, stopping the master plan have grown and developed into now we need a full-fledged autonomy, we need cultural independence, we need everything related with autonomy and self-rule. It has become uh, big, broad, and the question could not be answered by the system that the government have created 25 years ago. So the rhetoric from the government is say that we have given you the right to self-administer, but the people say that no, that's a fake one. We don't have, we don't elect our officials, we don't have our self-rule, we, the economy is dominated exclusively by, uh, you know, the, the grand elites. Thanks so much for speaking with us, Andalk. This has been really, really useful at dissecting these protests. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hola amigos, that's Hello Friends in Spanish. I'm Juan Tadeo. I'm with the Latin America team here at Global Voices. Say, are you liking this podcast? You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and many other podcast apps. Be sure to subscribe, give us an upvote, or please leave us a comment. Muchas gracias. That's thank you. On August 8th, 
a swarm of lawyers filled the emergency ward of Civic Hospital Quetta in Balochistan, Pakistan's largest province. Their colleague, Bilal Anwarkasi, who was the Balochistan Bar Association's president, was dead. He was murdered in broad daylight as he was on his way to court. His lifeless body was brought to the hospital. There were sobs and silent cries amongst the lawyers. Many held on to each other, trying to console one another and themselves. And then there was a blinding light, a deafening sound, an unbearable pain. A suicide bomber had detonated in the crowd. This story was originally reported on the Global Voices website by our Pakistan editor, Sana Salim. Seventy people died that day. Most of the bombing victims were lawyers or attached to the profession in some way. The Pakistani Taliban faction Jamut al-Arar claimed responsibility for the bar president's killing as well as the bombing at the hospital in the city of Quetta. According to a member of the Balochistan Bar Association, the bombing killed an entire generation of lawyers in Balochistan. The lawyers, many of whom were their family's first generation to attend college, served as the province's only hope for justice. A lawyer named Barkhurdar, who lost many colleagues in the bombing, shared the magnitude of the tragedy on his Twitter account. He wrote, I got my law license in 2010 and joined the Balochistan bar last year in September. So my total standing at the bar comes to about six years, of which I have spent nine months in Quetta. After this incident, all the lawyers in my batch are now in the top 100 practicing lawyers, both in terms of standing and seniority. All, I repeat all, senior practicing lawyers and barristers died today. My senior barrister, Adnan Kasi, passed away, and the rest of his associates in our chamber are either dead, injured, or missing as of yet. That's about the level of loss in terms of the body count and the profession. The number of junior lawyers who are the sole breadwinners of their homes and who are now unemployed runs into hundreds. The situation is all the more mind-numbing because Balochistan desperately needs lawyers. Balochistan is rich in oil and uranium, which is crucial for making nuclear energy and nuclear bombs. It's also got troves of heavy metals like gold and copper. But Balochistan is the poorest and least developed of Pakistan's provinces. Separatist insurgencies have been heating and cooling here for decades over grievances of neglect and a lack of development and political representation. To quell the insurgency, Pakistani security agencies have been allegedly involved in enforced disappearances. In recent years, thousands of Baloch men have gone missing and turned up dead, their bodies bearing torture marks. The region is also home to a wide range of security threats, which generates a fog around these human rights abuses. Balochistan shares borders with Afghanistan and Iran, and over the last 15 years, sectarian militants and militants linked to Al-Qaeda and the Taliban have been using the region as a haven to plan and launch attacks. Coming back to the bombing, Lawyers weren't the only people who died that day. A former colleague of mine named Mahmoud Khan was also killed. I wrote a short essay about him. Here's an excerpt. 
On the week of Mahmoud's 26th birthday, Ali Shah's heart is broken, and so is mine. Mahmoud Khan, a cameraman for Pakistani TV news channel Dawn News, was killed in the Quetta hospital bombing two days before his birthday. This is a monumental loss. Mahmoud represented the best of Pakistan and Pakistani media, an industry that helped transform him from a security guard into a skilled tech-savvy media professional within seven years. The media industry in Pakistan has many flaws, but is one of the rare places with a strong tradition of taking in everyone, irrespective of their background and education. Everyone takes care of each other as long as you're willing to learn. It's a place where you can actually grow through pure hard work and passion. I used to work at Dawn News. When I left six years ago, Alisha, our Quetta bureau chief, was trying to get Mahmoud Khan hired on staff as a video editor. In one of my last editorial calls with Alisha, he asked me to put in a good word for Mahmoud. Mahmoud walked into our Quetta bureau by pure chance. A private security company assigned him there. He was young, in his late teens, already supporting a small family. He always had a newspaper in his hand, and the Don News staff was intrigued by him. Mahmoud was intrigued by the media world. Colleagues like Ali Shah encouraged his curiosity. They also needed him. When news breaks, you make use of everyone around, and the Quetta Bureau was a small shop. Some days the reporter was the cameraman and the video editor. Some days the driver was the cameraman. And then one day, Mahmoud, the security guard, jumped in to help a reporter edit a video. Within months, he was staying after his guard shift and cutting simple video sequences at the speed that is needed in a chaotic 24-7 news cycle. Soon he was a part of the news team, but he kept learning and acquiring new skills. A couple of years ago, he was promoted to a cameraman. He wanted to be in the field. His dream was to be a reporter. He was saving up to do his master's in mass communications. Mahmoud was always trying to better himself and grow. All the while, he was supporting his seven children, three of whom he adopted after a family tragedy. Mahmoud was the best of us. Mahmoud was the best of Pakistan. Was he seen? That's Trinidadian for what's up. In Jamaica, they'd say, what's a guan? I'm Janine, Caribbean Regional Editor for Global Voices. Want to read more about the stories we've highlighted in this podcast? You'll find them and much more on our website, globalvoices.org, on Twitter at Global Voices, and on facebook.com slash globalvoicesonline. Although you might not know it, many more languages are spoken in Australia besides English. Before European explorers arrived in Australia a few centuries ago, the indigenous peoples who lived there spoke hundreds of different languages. But now, fewer than 150 indigenous languages remain in daily use. All of them, but about 20, are highly endangered. And only 10% of them are being learned by children, meaning the languages are at risk of disappearing as speakers grow older and pass away. Thankfully, there's a push to preserve this rich linguistic heritage. And many of these efforts are making use of digital tools, such as online video. 
We recently learned about one such project. It was brought to our attention by language advocacy group First Languages Australia, as well as Eduardo Avila, who is the director of our project Rising Voices, which helps spread citizen media to places that don't normally have access to it. The Ghana language is spoken by the Ghana people, who are the original inhabitants of the Adelaide Plains area in South Australia. By the way, it's spelled with a K, but it's pronounced like a G. A group of community members, teachers, linguists, and language enthusiasts called the Ghana Warna Pinsa Yinti are creating online video lessons to teach fun vocabulary to anyone who wants to learn Ghana. There are currently eight episodes which are hosted by community members Jack Kanya Buckskin and Taylor Tipu Power Smith. What about a Ghana man? Namani, the national sport of our country is AFL. We know the sport as Dinapondo. The great grandfather of the sport is known as Mandrook in Victoria. Down here in Adelaide Plains on Ghana country, we know the game as Pondo. That's Jack teaching words related to Australian rules football, one of the country's most popular sports. Today we're here at Cleland Wildlife Park and we're going to take a look at the animals on Ghana land. The sleepy lizard's name is Kalta. Kalta. And that's Taylor explaining how to say common Australian animals in Korna. For kids or adults, no judgment here. There's also a puppet program for kids called Birtawadi or the Possum's House. While the videos are publicly available online and accessible by anyone, the group does hope that viewers try their best to get the pronunciation, spelling, and grammar right in order to treat the language with respect. If you do make the effort, it won't just benefit the revitalization of Ghana. After all, studies show that learning another language benefits your brain in all sorts of ways, from better test scores to helping ward off cognitive decline in old age. the status quo to make fundamental changes. That's how one activist in the Caribbean country of Trinidad and Tobago described recent furor against an insurance company for their alleged discrimination against a black employee. This story was originally reported on the Global Voices site by Janine Mendez Franco. It all began when the employee uploaded to social media a letter he had received from Human Resources at his place of work, the Coal Fire Insurance Company. The letter complained about his, quote, unprofessional hairstyle and warned him that he could be disciplined or even fired if he didn't conform to the dress code and keep his hair, quote, clean, neat, and well-groomed. The employee, whose name is Maurice Ramirez, also uploaded a selfie. In it, the young man is wearing a collared shirt, tie, and black-rimmed glasses. His hair is short on the sides with tight, natural-looking curls on top. He sports a mustache and a bit of a beard on his chin. To be honest, it's hard to see what's so unprofessional about his hairdo, judging by the photo. 
Maurice later deleted his post, but it had already gone viral. People on Trinidad and Tobago social media began accusing the company of racism. One Facebook user summed up the outrage, writing, Race is a protected characteristic under the laws of Trinidad and Tobago's Equal Opportunity Act. It is also protected under international labor customs and treaties. This is foolish. He is a man of African descent with black hair. Does Coalfire insist that the Indian men or white men employed at the organization cut their hair? Or is it that their hair is inherently acceptable, while black hair is inherently unacceptable? Trinidad and Tobago is multi-ethnic, and race relations can be complex. The country's colonial era was socially, economically, and politically dominated by the white elite. But there soon grew a black and mixed-race middle class that would forge the country's future. In 1970, there was a black power revolution that aimed to change Trinidad and Tobago's unequal reality, not just for black people, but for the Indian population too. Coalfire, the insurance company, placed Maurice on administrative leave. They denied the accusations of racism and allegedly instructed their staff to use their social media accounts to boost the company's image online. Yep. As the criticism against Coalfire piled up, some cautioned against jumping to conclusions. It's true that we do only know Maurice's version, and Coalfire has declined to discuss the details of the case. Journalist Vernon O'Reilly Ramsar warned, all rise. The court of public opinion is in session. The full story be damned. I wish people could wait to see both or even multiple sides of a story. This applies to just about everything spreading on social media. Think before disseminating. However, as another Facebook user said, I don't know the entire story, but either way, this is an embarrassment to an organization. In 2011, an incredible wave of demonstrations began to sweep through the Middle East and North Africa. People from Bahrain to Syria, from Tunisia to Yemen, gathered in the streets to protest against corruption, unemployment, human rights violations, and authoritarian rule. In short, they wanted something different, something better than the status quo. Egypt was one of the countries where tens of thousands of people came together to demand change. A few short weeks after protests began there, Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak, who had held the position for three decades, was ousted from power. It was a revolution. Fast forward two years. By then, the unity with which Egyptians came together to overthrow a tyrant had eroded. Political divisions had grown, and violent clashes between protesters and security forces continued. After a period of martial law, Egyptians voted in a groundbreaking presidential election. In the second round, 51.73% of voters chose Mohamed Morsi, a member of the controversial Islamist movement, 
the Muslim Brotherhood. But discontent remained widespread, and Morsi was booted in a military coup within the year. A group of Morsi supporters staged a sit-in in Cairo's Raba al-Adawiyah Square. Six weeks later, security forces launched a brutal raid against the protesters. Human Rights Watch called it one of the world's largest killings of demonstrators in a single day in recent history. On the anniversary of the bloodshed, Cairo-based Salma Isam recalled her personal experience with the horror of that day in an essay for Global Voices. Here she is, narrating her heart-wrenching piece, Cairo's Rabba Massacre. Three years on, the smell of death still lingers. They say that people may forget what you said, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And the worst thing about this podcast is that I'm telling a tragic story. I honestly don't want to give any negative vibes. I was even reluctant to share this. But then I realized that I really want this to reach as many people as possible. A lot of you may have heard about the horrible attack that took place in Egypt three years ago, known as the Rabah Massacre. I wonder how many of you really know the details. I studied on campus where I used to hear gunfire more often than the hustle of freshman students. The sight of army men with their firearms is as familiar to me as the loud chants of protests under the dome of Cairo University. I joined the School of Political Science just eight months after the start of the revolution. At a time of historic change, the university had been home to a large and diverse politically oriented student body. It was a maquette of the tense political scene in the land of pharaohs. Never had I witnessed such a wrathful atmosphere of political tension as the one that prevailed after what has come to be known as the Rabah massacre. I saw live bullets being fired at the main gate, ambulances on campus, and massive amounts of tear gas thrown at the marshers who were condemning the bloody actions of Egyptian security forces at Rabah on August 14, 2013. That day, a state of emergency was declared across Egypt early in the morning. Security forces then violently broke up sit-in, organized by Muslim Brotherhood supporters. Their use of force left up to 1,000 people dead in one day. The sit-in at the square was the largest sit-in to be raided. And as the shooting took place, armored bulldozers were, were on site and helicopters circled over the scene. It was a war zone. Intense shooting targeted the medical field hospital as people hurried to drag the dead bodies away from fire, and doctors carried out last-minute rescue attempts. I recall a leaked video of a doctor screaming, The chest had exploded, the head had exploded, and the brain is outside, it's over. What can I do? What can I do? I wasn't there. I wasn't there, but I saw the footage. I saw pictures that were carved in my memory the moment I let my eyes on them. Pictures of burnt tents, of clothes stained with blood, of crying mothers. I saw a younger weeping over her brother's chest, witnessing his last breath. I wasn't there, but I saw my best friend weeping over her cousin who was shot in the neck. I remember her shaking voice over the phone saying that they could not find his buddy among the others. I remember the sound of the cries around her. I wasn't there, 
but I saw the rows of corpses let out in white coffins, awaiting collection by relatives in a Cairo mosque. It looked like a cemetery. It looked like a charnel house in the aftermath of a battle where blocks of ice covered the bodies and they sprayed air freshener to cover up the stench of decay. I wasn't there. I wasn't there, but I saw a mother examining the faces of dead people at a morgue looking for her son among the burnt and shot bodies. I wasn't there, but I received news of my classmate who was gunned down while escaping the southern area of the camp. Back then, I was there. I was there watching members of the media blessing these acts of murder, blessing tyranny, oppression, and the mass exterminations of those who did not conform to intolerant political agendas. I was there when the murdered were called terrorists and the murderers became the saviors. I lived it all. The square now looks like a typical bustling Cairo scene. Today, nobody remembers that not so long ago, they had to cross through sniper fire to reach the other side. The sound of bullets echo in my ears whenever I pass by this area. The dull and reckless scene of crowded cars rekindles the memory. It reminds me of inhaling tear gas. And that statue of the two hands representing the police and the army, which stand in the square as a supposed memorial, looks like it's covered in blood. All thoughts are with the victims of Rabah. The smell of destiny lingers. That's it for this episode. This is Sahar. And Lauren. Curious about how we find these stories? Well, we're not like other news organizations. Global Voices is an international network of passionate, plugged-in people. Together, we've been building bridges of understanding, as we like to call them, through our digital reporting since 2005. Our 1,400 mostly volunteer writers, editors, and translators cover stories from 167 countries and translate them into more than 30 languages. Inspiring work of all of our Global Voices authors, translators, and editors made this episode possible. So a huge thank you to all of you out there. Don't forget, if you like what you heard, please share this episode with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. In this episode, we featured Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including Please Listen Carefully by Chaucer, Clover by Little Glassman, Stay by Igor Kabarov, Modulation of the Spirit by Little Glassman, The Sink by Corey Gray, Se Recorder by Mon Placer, and Bongo Avenger by Eric and Ryan Kilkenny. Thanks for tuning in to the week that was at Global Voices. We're taking a slightly longer break in between episodes again, but you can expect to hear our voices in three weeks. In the meantime, you can catch up on our last 11 episodes if you haven't already. Happy listening! <laughs>